red stripe, you see, is um, part of a four pack from uh, that I got from B and M stores, and um, they do it at a good price. And it's a pint can, so it's not like a wishy washy shitty little can. Oh, I love it's them a, pint cans. Oh, beautiful! But I'm having it in my uh, Madri Exceptional glass, uh, which I nabbed from the Plough Pub. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took it. I didn't want to drink it and be over the limit, so. I took it home. This is this. I'm really incriminating myself here. But what I did is I took the the, the drink home with me between my lap. I think that's very responsible. Well, I don't a, think don't think many police. Yeah, keep before you left. I had a few sips. I thought if I have this, I'll be over the limit. So I put it between <laughs> my legs and I drove home Brilliant. in the beautiful Madrid glass and finished it off at home. Didn't touch another drop. Didn't spill a drop because I drove beautifully. And um, had it at home. And now I've got the wonderful Madri Exceptional Glass, which I don't know if you've had it, Lee. No, I haven't. It's an excellent lager. Can you get that at B&M as well? Uh, I've not seen it in B&M, but you can get it on uh, draft. Uh, you can get it in cans now. Very nice beer. It's got a lovely distinctive label. Okay. Yeah. Red. It has a gentleman in a, in a checked waistcoat and a checked hat. It looks like a bit like an Italian pearly king. Right. Oh, that sounds terrible. No, it's actually quite tasteful. I'm probably not doing it doing mm. it justice. But it's just a the really... pearly king. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. We have got all the badges, you know. It's not like yeah. a dirty cockney, you know, sort under his fingernails looking like shit. This guy's like a very nice trim beard and he's not got loads of like stupid little badges all over his shirt and trying to rip you off, no doubt, which is what Cockneys do. I'm just alienating half our audience. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sorry, Cockneys. <laughs> well, we just we mean the stereotype Cockneys, <laughs> not the genuine salt of the earth Cockneys <laughs> like yeah. Frank Butcher and uh, <laughs> Ricky. Anyway, people have not tuned in to hear us talk about beer like the real ale twats. Well, do, do you know what though? They bloody should. You know, we should get sponsorship from these fuckers. Pay us some money for doing this, for fuck's sake. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Pink Floyd tonight. Yes. Um, now, they're one of my favourite bands, Dave, but I've never really heard you talk about them, so what's your take on them? Well, let me tell you now. I love Wish You Were Here and Dark Side of the Moon. Bit obvious, I know. I do love both those albums. And I, t- I did have to, uh, I was going to say, suffer, to begin with, an onslaught of echoes when I lived at, um, <laughs> I know what you're going to say now. <laughs> when I lived at Swallow Street in Levenshoe with with Gareth, but I did come to love it very. You know, I think it's an amazing. Didn't he play live at Pompeii every day? He played live at Pompeii all the time. Because he said I, he's. I think he bought it when he was in school, didn't he? And he said that he listened. He put it on the video every day when he got back from school. Yeah, he played yeah. it all the time, and. Um, you know, I've listened to it many, many times as a consequence. The whole album, the whole the whole video of the album, because he had it on VHS and we would play it often, kind of drunk of an evening. You know, it would be like four episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and then, uh, David, how about we put some echoes on? <laughs> Live at Pompeii. Like, okay. Yeah, Gareth, go on, why not? Yeah. So there we are. I much prefer the live live at Pompeii version than I do the album version oh yeah that's the one that's the one I'm really familiar with to be honest with you because yeah obviously I've been I've been played that video so many times 
I got into Floyd on the back of the wall. I mean, obviously, we remember uh, another Brick in the World Part 2. That had a massive impact uh, on me. I loved it. And um, later on, when I was t- in my late teens, uh, I got massively obsessed with the wall. I used to play it all the time on my Walkman. Yeah. To sort of, um, I don't know, deal with the hell of work at <laughs> <laughs> that time. And I uh, absolutely loved it. And uh, it, it possibly is still my favourite Floyd album. But I think what I find absolutely fascinating about Floyd, and I'm sure you do as well, is the relationship between <laughs> Gilmore. Yeah. Now, you often get these difficult relationships with the two driving forces in bands, don't you? Yeah. You know, Lennon and McCartney, Simon and Garfunkel, Dave and Ray of the Kinks, yeah. Axel and Slash, yeah. Nick, Gilmore, Nick, not Gilmore. Keith and, Keith and Mick. Keith and Mick, and uh, of course, Gillen and Blackmore. Of course, Gillen and Blackmore, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, mate. Which we have covered before. I've got to intercede very quickly and just say, all this week, I have been doing my impression of David Coverdale. What a year it was when Whitesnake hit the charts with Here I Go Again. It was incredible. I love him. I love him. I love him. I actually follow him on something in Twitter, I think, and he's always hilarious. He's so funny. Sort of quite old school humour. I love the fact that he looked... He looks but, a bit like an old woman now, too. He's he got, does, like, but he's such so a nice branches. guy. He's such a oh, he's happy amazing. He's, and uh, there's a little bit of partridge about him that he kind of knowingly knows he's a bit partridge, I think, as well, in, yeah. the, in the way he is. He's a very decent person, a very he decent is. human being. Yeah. But he's so eloquent. And I was playing in, I was playing a video of him to Jackie, and she was laughing. She just thought it was hilarious. She couldn't believe, you know, the image of him, you know, in the 80s with the hair, very macho, to, to hear him sound like he does the way he yes. talks he's eloquent well you, of course me and mr page um we have uh, hit it off marvelously and therefore i'm very very happy to work with jimmy yeah. <laughs> it's just to think of beauty yeah i've just thought of another um uh, rivalry that ended in tears um hubbins and tufnell <laughs> of course <laughs> which i suppose the Derek Small's role in Pink Floyd must go to Nick Mason. It looks a bit like him for a start. <laughs> he does, yeah. When it, definitely in the live at Pompeii days with that drooping moustache. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, I'll just very quickly say that we've been watching Better Call Saul. You know, George is really into it. So we've been watching it as a family. And I keep saying to him, Michael McKean, you know, he's a brilliant guitarist. He's a good singer and a brilliant guitar player. And blah, 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 because he's so brilliant in Better Call Saul. I don't know if you've seen Better Call Saul. I've seen some. Um, His acting is phenomenal in it, to be fair. So last night I showed him some clips of um, my lad. I showed him some clips of This Is Spinal Tap. And by the way, everybody, if you are searching on streaming channels for This Is Spinal Tap, I'm going, oh, my God, I wish one of these fucking streaming channels would have This Is Spinal Tap on and you can't find it, it's on YouTube at the moment. So they are, once again, 
yeah, once again, Something Wicked podcast is offering you some brilliant advice. Get onto fucking YouTube and watch This Is Spinal Tap because it's there. You can watch yeah. the whole thing. So we watched, I showed him the clip when David St. Hubbins and his awful girlfriend try and usurp the band and the manager. Oh, yeah. What a scene that is. And it's actually brilliantly acted by everybody as well as yeah. it's been hilariously funny. Oh, yeah, I love that, yeah. And says it all about, that's bands, you know, and there's no doubt Pink Floyd have their um, spinal tap moments. So, yeah, I mean, the rivalry sort of still continues today. I've always sort of wavered in between the two and who I think is more right than the other. I really admire Roger so much, but I kind of really like what I see of David because he seems a very chilled out, very sort of sweet. Yeah, that's it. He's completely different personalities. And uh, it's fire and water, isn't it? Yeah, it is fire and ice. And uh, fire and ice, rather, that's the expression, not fire and blood. With Nick, not mentioned Rick yet, but we'll get on to Rick. But uh, I'm so fascinated by the demise of Pink Floyd and when it started to go wrong. Yeah. And it started to go wrong after Dark Side of the Moon, really, because Dark Side of the Moon was obviously huge the ultimate album the album that always worked towards and it was a phenomenal album brilliantly received and sold massively and made them massively rich and i think from that period that's when the band started to fragment because you know what happens when bands get the success that they've been aiming for they become egocentric they stop spending time with each other. They don't have that drive. And I think uh, it's always the case, isn't it, where you're more together when you're working towards something, but when you've achieved it, the cracks start to show. So when they resumed for the Wish You Were Here sessions, what became Wish You Were Here, I think Rick Wright and Nick Mason were doing loads of drugs. Okay, so their contribution was uh, very, very small. Right, only had one writing credit on that album. Mm. And it started to become the Dave and Roger show, really, because they were coming up with more ideas and getting them getting them down. And that is a great album as well. Wish You Were Here, one of the best. And uh, But when it came to Animals, the album that came next, Waters started to dominate more, you know, because he came in with this idea of let's do a concept album Animals is loosely based on Orwell's Animal Farm. Mm. And I think Gilmore only has one writing credit on dogs. And uh, Waters was was the, the sort of uh, the guy driving it all, really. Absolutely. That's what I've always felt about it. That's, what, that's the impression that's, it's always given me, that Waters was the driving force as far as the ideas were concerned, as the greater concepts were concerned. But Gilmore was a very gifted uh, musician and songwriter. He was, yeah. So, so there was a kind of, again, fire and ice there, I think, because possibly, and I might be wrong on this, but I always felt, this is how I've always perceived it, is that Waters is the conceptualizer, perhaps more than anybody else in the band, he has the big picture and the big ideas. And I mean, he's such an incredibly articulate and intelligent man. I love yeah. hearing him talk about things. And he, he's he's always up for the fight on things he believes in. Yeah. You know? And I really love him for that. Yeah. Uh, and on the whole, I agree with what he talks about as well. But um, 
I always see that Gilmore is this, well, for one, he's a wonderful guitar player. He's got mm. a very nice singing voice, very unique. I mean, I was watching a, a gig of his the other night in Gdansk, and he was playing like classic Pink Floyd stuff, um, Dark Side of the Moon, Breathe, and Time, all the classic sort of Dark Side of the Moon stuff, and then Wish You Were Here stuff and what have you, uh, amongst other things. But he was so good. He's such a slick bloody operator. You know what I mean? He's a yeah. great musician, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, Animals was where Roger started to believe that he was the sole writer for the band, and mm. he was the only one that could come up with good ideas. And that got worse on the wall because, of course, you know, <laughs> that was his that was his idea. The wall, he wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it. I mean, at that time as well, Dave. What happened was, which added to the tension in the band. Mm. After Animals, they got ripped off by an accountant and lost a lot of the money that they'd made. So there was huge pressure to come up with an, a new album that was a good album and one that would sell. Okay. Yeah. And all the pressure came on Waters, really, because it was his idea that they agreed to go with. Mm. And um, it became Tax Exiles. The album was mainly recorded in France. And during the sessions, the band started to get pissed off with Rick Wright, yeah. the keyboard player, because similar to the previous two albums, he wasn't contributing anything. Mm. And uh, but what pissed them off even more was that he wanted a producer's credit. He started to try and get involved in the production, but he didn't know what he was doing, in fairness. And uh, mm. Waters particularly wanted rid of him. And it came to a head where I think the album was mainly finished. They had a bit of a break, a bit of a holiday. But Waters wanted them to reconvene earlier than planned. OK, mm. so apparently Rick Wright was in Greece somewhere with his family and uh, got the message that Rogers wants him back to do some more keyboard parts. And his reply was, Roger can go and fuck himself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, which you can imagine how that went down. It was difficult to get rid of Rick because he was like a a core of the band. You know, it's not that easy just to fire someone. I think what happened was... Uh, oh, and they also withdrew his producer credit, which obviously pissed Rick off, right? Because mm. he's thinking, well, I'm not going to make any money from the writing because I'm not doing any writing. I'm just going to get yeah. a fraction because I'm performing on it. And you can imagine that it's a Pink Floyd album. Having a production credit or any sort of credit is going to translate into a massive amount of money. Oh, Yeah. So the, I think what happened is to get him out of the band, because Roger basically said, if Rick's not out of the band, then I'm walking off the project and I'm holding this material to ransom. So <laughs> the other members had to agree because they were all banking on this album to get him out of the financial mess they were in. But I suppose that was typical of Roger. He did issue quite a few ultimatums. Well, uh, absolutely. And what happened was, Rick did agree to leave after the tour. He was actually sacked as a band member. Yeah. But then rehired as a top musician. I was just going to say, this is the classic kind of hilarity about Pink Floyd, of sacking the band member and rehiring him. Because the reality was he was such a a good musician. He's really classically trained pianist, isn't he, Rick Wright? He's a great pianist. And I think that's 
that carried on, didn't it? That carried on for a long, long time. No, I think he left at the end of the world tour. Yeah, but what didn't when Roger had left, wasn't basically the band in real terms, David and Nick. Yeah. And Rick was still a hired hand. Back yeah, he, he back, came. Even though he was a founding member of Pink Floyd. I know, I know. But, but you know what was... It's insane. What was quite ironic was that because he was a hired member for the tour, he made more money on the yeah, tour. Yeah, they had to pay him proper rates. <laughs> because they, the tour lost money. But he, but he still- made money from it. Probably didn't, you know, make up for losing the producer's credit, but he saw him okay. But, you know, there's always this narrative that Roger's an arsehole, you know, Roger's impossible to work with. But I think you have to put it in context that, yeah, yeah, that this was the guy that, although he did force himself to become the main force in Pink Floyd and unfairly shut out others, but I suppose the others, and they do admit it, Gilmore does admit it, that he wasn't really coming up with stuff. The other band members wanted time away from Pink Floyd because they became less interested in Pink Floyd, really. You know, and they got married and mm. they had it's, kids and stuff. It all acts as a distraction. Whereas Roger, his life is creating. Exactly. And I was going to say exactly that, Lee. I mean, I think it's obvious to anybody with creativity in their veins, like, and hopefully you and I are people like that, to, uh, to observe that situation, know a little bit about the history and to say what Pink Floyd became would never, ever have happened if it wasn't for Roger Waters. For better or worse, whatever they might, they would not have become that band because a lot of the conceptualising and a huge amount of the drive was Roger and the creativity a great deal of it was mm. Roger, wasn't it? I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. You know, this it's perhaps hard for anybody listening to this who's the age of like 18 or 20 or something, which is probably unlikely that 18 or 20 year olds will be listening <laughs> to this, but to understand the magnitude of the size of Pink Floyd. What I would say is I know some 20 odd year olds that listen to Pink Floyd and think they're amazing. Mm. So it is... There is a legacy there. I bet there's a huge legacy there, actually. You know, a young yeah. man who's probably only about 24 was singing every single word to Dark Side of the Moon when he, he was giving me a lift to Manchester. He loved it. So there's a massive legacy because he's passed on from father to son, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and I think uh, in fairness to Roger, Roger has been very honest about the way he was during that period. And uh, he said, oh, yeah. yeah, I was very obstinate. I was very stubborn and I was quite horrible at times but he was an ambitious pig but you know i was under a lot of stress exactly he was he was under a hell of a lot of stress and he he admitted to feeling quite insecure as well you know sure sure and and it's incredible really because initially when you look at them as that sort of college band that university band the driving force the creative driving force was sid barrett initially Mm. yeah and if you think about what they were initially and what Sid was sort of doing you know I know there's a massive amount of Sid fans out there and they go, oh I love the Sid the Sid period and I love the early Pink Floyd and it's quite good pop music and stuff it's quite you know and he was quite whimsical and interesting and stuff but it wouldn't it, it just would not have become this kind of this kind of monolith of rock <laughs> and a prog that Pink Floyd became under the 
stewardship of Roger Waters and to some degree Dave Gilmore, you know. Yeah, well, I'd say a massive degree of Dave Gilmore. I think obviously Roger was the driving force, but I think Roger underestimated Gilmore and I don't think he realised his value, to be honest, because mm. although Roger was great at the ideas and the concept and the lyrics, his musicianship, the music yeah. often came from David. Like you said, he's a great guitarist. I mean, if you listen to, I was listening to Animals the other day. and yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. If you listen to his guitar work on Sheep. Yeah. It's fucking amazing. That song would be nothing without that. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's a great musician. And actually, I think he's, I think he's like something like 73rd or something in the Hall of Fame of great rock guitarists or something. I think that's scandalous. Yeah. Um, because uh, I read it somewhere. I might have to go on wiki. Bet the edge is higher, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. And he is such a brilliant and profoundly elegant guitarist as well. This is the thing, you know, he's so tasteful. This is the thing, he's so bloody tasteful in his guitar playing. And I think that's one of the great things you could say about Pink Floyd. They are incredibly tasteful. When you listen to mm. their, their work, you know, those albums... The, the precision and they're a kind of great sort of podcast album if you like you know the idea of podcasts people listen to podcasts as they do things around the house you can just put on a Pink Floyd album and sort of follow its journey you know, I mean part of the reason why maybe Dark Side of the Moon became so massive was it was kind of like and I mean this in the most I mean this in the most genuinely heartfelt and respectful way it was almost kind of like easy prog mm. you know it was melodic it's tuneful it meanders you it, it's like one massive song isn't it it's because like one, i love the fact that, that all the songs merge into each other exactly and you can just play it on loop and it's love a it pleasure to listen day. to it it's like 42 minutes yeah and you, not one bit is crap you know no, it just not all one flows bit. It's magnificent, and and the lyrics, it is magnificent, and yeah, it is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece mm. of, of an album, and you should be so proud of it. But you know, all so much of their work is brilliant, really. To be fair, and you can, it's studious. They've worked on it, they've yeah. owned it. They, you know, credit. Well, it's to all them. the different. You know, I mean, Pink Floyd sound like no other band, do they? And. Uh, yeah. Given all the problems that happened during the wall recording, you know, all the stress and the arguments and stuff, that is an incredible sounding album as well. It's got yeah. so many additional bits to it, you know, the sound effects and the all sorts of layers to it. And a lot of that should be credited to Bob Ezrin, the producer, because yeah. I think they, they weren't used to, I think they used to produce their own stuff, didn't they, mainly? Mm. Uh, but it was felt that they needed uh, a producer on that. And he was another one that Roger fell out with and threatened and cut off and <laughs> threatened to sue and all, all this. That is what he's like a bit, isn't he, Roger? He's one of the members, it might have been David Gilmore, said that he doesn't realise how alarming he is at times and how intimidating. But, you know, that that's just how he is. He's, uh, he's probably like sort of quite psychotic in the in the studio, isn't he? <laughs> you can imagine. But I, I, I thought, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about it, but that Live 8 concert, it, it, it seemed so so awkward for the others, you know, yeah. to be around him. He was so kind of gregarious and, hey, He was well buddy. into it. He wanted to do oh, it more than any of it. them. Yeah. But you can see Dave Gilmore, more than anybody there, was uncomfortable. Like, 
it was like shaking hands with the devil or Mugabe or something. You know, I always just say, yeah. I'd never shake the hand of Robert Mugabe. You know, this is kind of yeah. You know, I watched that a lot. I love that little set they do. And uh, it's brilliant. It came about because Geldof just thought it would be a great idea and a big draw if you got the original members back. And I think he asked Roger first. Yeah. And Roger said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Definitely. I don't suppose Rick Wright had much of a say in it, to be honest, because he wasn't <laughs> a proper member. But uh, just pay you, Rick. I think they used you. Nick Mason as a bit of an intermediary because he has always been good friends with both Roger and David. You know, he likes them both, and a bit like uh, Eric Smalls. Bits, yeah, Smalls, yeah. <laughs> But Gilmore was like, no, fuck that. I don't want to ever work with him. And why should I? You know, he's not a member of yeah. Pink Floyd. We'll do it as Pink Floyd, but we're not doing it with him. And uh, eventually he agreed. But he the said... was going, come on, Dave. You need to fucking do it. Think yeah. of the kids in Africa. I'm surprised they did it after what Geldof said about their music. He, he said he hated Pink Floyd and they were shit. <laughs> He was in the bloody film. He was the yeah. lead actor in in the bloody uh, brick in the wall film. He was. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think they lasted a bit longer than the Boomtown fucking rats. Let's well, exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It was uh, what what I found interesting was that Roger was like dead enthusiastic, and the others were like, "Oh, well, let's do it. We'll get out of the way. It's for charity." And uh, they arranged some rehearsals and Roger would always turn up late, like an hour late. And it was always suspected that he did this deliberately as a bit of a power trip. And that really pissed Gilmore off because he saw the old behaviour coming coming to the fore again. The performance is brilliant. It's, it's flawless almost. And uh, by the end, Roger's like pulling them in, isn't he, for a hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just see Gilmore is... uh it's a cringe factor. <laughs> it is. Uh, so and I don't blame him, to be no. honest, because before that, you know, they'd been locked in legal battles and slagging each other off constantly in the press. Yeah. So, you know, there was no love lost, really. It's not no. like they made up by then. No, it's hilarious, mm. isn't it? It's just incredible. You know, but they are brilliant. I mean, I think it's weird, isn't it? You, you kind of listen to them both on telly and you kind of think, oh, they seem like great guys, you know. Mm. I'd love to know them both separately. Love to work with them, do a song with them, you know. It'd be a fantastic thing. You know? But it's obvious that they've just, over the years, clash, 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 too much. Yeah, well, he's he's much more laid back, Dave, and uh, yeah, he's a very amenable person. Seems and I think a way. lot of people that were around the band at that time said that there was times when he was really provoked by Roger, mm. and he didn't react for the good of the band, you know, especially when they were they were recording the final cut, which was described as a period of abject misery, <laughs> you know, by all members of the band, in fact. So it was just hell. But he said, Roger was saying, we're doing this, we're doing that. David would be saying, well, what about this? He'd be getting knocked back. Mm. And he would just end up smiling resign, resignedly, you know. Mm. And yeah. uh, I like it. I do like the final cut. But mm. 
I can understand why it gets such a slagging because it is one of the most bleakest albums you could ever listen to. Mm. And it actually started out as um, it was going to accompany the film, the wall film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was going to be called Spare Bricks because they had some leftovers from the wall sessions. But then the Faultlands happened and Roger turned it into like a concept album about war and stuff, which David didn't want to do because he saw it was like, well, we've just done the war. Why are we doing that again? And he didn't like Roger's whining and politicising. So that got them off on the wrong foot. And Dave says that he got behind it. He did it. He didn't want to stop Roger doing what he wanted to do. But he says, ultimately, the songs are not up to it. There's about two or three good songs on there. And Mm. uh, they weren't good enough for the wall. Why are they good enough for this? And you can't disagree with him on that, really. Yeah. Yeah. And it's often called like a Roger Waters solo album because I don't think Gilmore had a credit on it at all. I could be wrong there. He might have had one. but Mm. uh, And I think he only sung on one song as well, which is... A song called Not Now John, which is completely different from the rest of the stuff. Have you heard it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing for me with, um, I remember listening to it quite, quite pissed, really. One. <laughs> and um, I remember, I think I remember putting it on a fall into sleep. I remember listening to go to sleep. And I actually thought some of it was quite good. To be fair, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's not in the same league, is it? As uh, as some of their earlier stuff, of course, you know. No. It's it's difficult though, isn't it? It's difficult because the part of the problem with any band, and it, and it's certainly a band that have had these behemoth albums, you know, this incredible success, that mm. um, you're fighting a losing battle, aren't you? You're always going to be judged by your last work. If your previous works are are the dark side of the moon and wish you were here and, you know, like you say, even, you know, animals, which is so as things go on. I mean, I mean, obviously the wall was massive, wasn't it? The wall Mm -hmm. was massive because in a way, because the single went to number one and was a big number one single. So it became very it became very popularist in that way for starters, didn't it? You know. And then beyond that, suddenly he's got Gerald Scarf and, uh, and he's making this film. And it, it, I mean, talk about conceptualising to the hilt. You say, yeah. what happens next? So you're going to fall somewhere, aren't you? You're going to fall. Yeah. You can't. Nobody. I don't think anybody has just gone on and on and on for the history of music and the history of creativity. have gone on and on from one triumph to another. You hit a. And, you know, you hit an impasse, you hit the wall. (laughs) Yeah, you hit the wall. And that's what's happened, isn't it? It's it's a very, I mean, it does take you back to obviously the early 80s, which is a period I'm sort of semi-fond of for the trauma it caused me. But it's good for that, you know. I I do like that aspect of it. I think it's a really valuable album. It's, you can't imagine an album like that being made by any other band and what I find interesting about Floyd is that, as was quite common with bands at the time, they're releasing an album every couple of years, aren't they? Yeah, of course. You know, um, this was 83 it came out, which was yeah. the longest gap they had between albums because it was usually like two years. They toured for quite a bit 
on the wall and then they made the film. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was the film really that I remember reading something that Gilmore said that Roger was again holding people to ransom, threatening to pull out the project over some fairly minor issue. And he, he just realised at that point that this is the end of their constructive working relationship. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why it was such a miserable experience doing the final cut. And of course, that after that came out, um, I think it was it went to number one, which I think was the first album since perhaps Wish You Were Here to go to number one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite surprising. It. But they never toured it. First album that they didn't tour from, and later on, Roger just announced that he was leaving Pink Floyd. Not that Pink Floyd were over, but that he was leaving them. But because he was the driving force and main right of the band, he felt that that was the end of Pink Floyd. But of course, the others had other ideas on that. Oh yeah, well, I, it's hard for me to think of Pink Floyd. <laughs> And, and and I suppose that's the power of, of Roger Waters' presence in the band, isn't it? After all those albums. Yeah. And and these concept albums, very meaningful, earnest concept albums that were made, to think of the, the band in the same light. So I dare I think of it, I sometimes think of the new Pink Floyd as Pink Floyd Light, really. In a well, way. I saw them. I ended up seeing them for the first and only time uh in 88 when they played Main Road, City's Old Ground. They toured uh, the Moments of Lapse of Reason album, mm. um, which I didn't have at the time. And I've, I, I, and it's not a great album. It's nothing like, nothing special, nothing like the Waters-led stuff. It's so hard, isn't it? Because you think of the albums in the heart of their career, they have left a real mark, you know? Mm. And it must be, I don't know whether it's frustrating for Dave Gilmore and every, I, mean, I suppose it's very, very frustrating for Rick Wright. And it's probably uh, frustrating for Nick as well. But the shadow of the shadow of Waters is massive over the band. Yeah. Massive. It always will be. And I, and I think that there's, this, there's almost like these two types of Pink Floyd fans who think of the shadow of, of Waters and... Uh, and what's his features, you know? Sid. Sid, yeah. Yeah, you know. Right, I was yeah. talking about before because Sid Barrett, there is this huge sort of group of Pink Floyd fans who love the early stuff, the Sid Barrett stuff. And um, what is, I mean, incredibly crazy, of course, is that incredible anecdote that when they were paying homage to Sid with the song Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, uh, this guy who they hadn't seen for years and years walks in uh, and it was unrecognisable to them. He walks into the actual yeah. studio while they're recording it. I mean, yeah, yeah. that is bizarre that he was kind of allowed in for a start. That's the, th- that's the first thing that well, when I, mean, I hear that story. Nobody knew who he was, did they? They just did you were know setting him? up the guitars and they saw this bloke sort of ambling about, thought he must, have been, must work for the studio. And then one of them said, that's Sid. Yeah. But what I never hear is what actually happened next. No, it's almost like they ignored him and he went home. What did he say to him? How did Sid respond? You know, surely there was more to that amazing moment. But you you never hear them talk about it. No, I think you make a great point there, Lee. I think that's exactly it. 
I find it uncomfortable when I hear them talk about that story because it sounds to me like they they were just kind of anally retentive second generation kind of posh boys really weren't they oh hi yeah hi Sid how are you and you know no one put their arm around him and said Sid it's amazing to see you let's go and have a curry let's talk (laughs) you know and Sid of course they probably didn't know how to deal with it because he he obviously had suffered like a a a severe mental illness trauma if you like for years and years which I have to be honest, personally, I think he's part of the the legacy and the myth of Sid. I think part of the, the reason why Sid, it's kind of a James Dean thing, isn't it? Mm. A lot of people feel, oh, Sid, that was great. He was so unusual <clears throat> and he came up with these quirky songs. And is it partially because also he just sort of disappeared off the scene because yeah. he, he just lost the plot because he took too many drugs? And, you know, the LSD just fried his brain. Yeah, that was always the story, wasn't it? That he had a bad trip or he took too much LSD. And but what Rogers says is he thinks he has an he had an underlying mental condition, like, and he names it as schizophrenia. Yeah, probably... which combined with the acid he was taking did something irreparable. Mm. And uh, that's probably the case. And it might be the same with someone like Peter Green, someone who had who was already uh, sensitive as a person and possibly prone to mental illness. And then they take the LSD and boom, it's like a Molotov cocktail in the brain. You know, that's it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's kind of parallel stories there, isn't it, with Peter Green as well. It's very interesting, that. But what is also extremely interesting, I think, is the ties that bind Pink Floyd are actually around Sid. Whether you are... I personally am very much... My feet are firmly really in the in the Roger camp for Pink Floyd and the Dave, the Dave and Roger yeah, camp. Yeah, me too. I like all yeah, the prog stuff. Their era. Yeah, I mean, the Sid stuff, and I used to play it in the club. We used to play See Emily play, you know, and stuff like that. Great. Nice little pop tune, amongst other things. Arnold Lane, all that. And that's all Sid stuff, the early stuff. But the Rogers, you know, the, the meaty... Pink Floyd stuff is great, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. great. You have to say it's great. But yeah. the ties that bind are very interesting because the ties that bind, I think, Waters and Gilmore together are Sid. They mm. both mm. love Sid. They both tried really hard for Sid. Gilmore tried to say his that... solo album, didn't he? Am I yeah. Right saying... Obviously, Gilmore replaced Sid, didn't it? Was there a period when they were both in the band? I can't. I think there was a period because he. he I'm not kind that of, familiar with the early early. I think what it was. And forgive me if I've got this wrong. Any massive Pink Floyd fans listening to this, I can hear Gareth here going, "No, you've got that wrong, Lawton." But I think <laughs> that in the early days, he came in to not necessarily replace Sid, but to help out because yeah. Sid was a fucking wreck. You know, he wasn't doing anything, and then they yeah, sort of yeah. had to get. They had to sort of let him go because for his own good, I think. I don't think. Well, I think they got pissed off of him, to be honest, because I think he was he was quite disruptive. I think he was. I think he was. And Rogers never got over that guilt that he felt about. He felt bad. But Dave, 
tried to help him then with his solo album, didn't he? So Dave produced it and played on it mm. and did a lot of work on it. Maybe again through guilt because he thinks, well, I'm replacing him in the band here, so I'm going to sort of help. I'm going to help Sid now, which sounded like quite sweet, really, to be honest. The impression you get is that that Sid was finished at that point, but he did go on to make. Was it one or two solo albums? I know there was the Mad the Madcap Laughs, I think it's called. That was his main one. Yeah. Uh, I think there was another one. But then he he lost interest in music altogether, didn't he? And he just wanted to paint. But um, yeah, he obviously became a recluse after that. You get this idea that he's like almost semi comatose, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like a vegetable, but he's he wasn't. I don't think. But he did become a bit of a sad character. But there was some story that he used to walk from London to Cambridge. <laughs> the Madcap Lastly, just to let you know here, was produced by Sid Barrett, Peter Jenner, Malcolm Jones, Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters. I didn't know that Waters. Mm. So they were trying to sort of help him with his solo album, probably through guilt, maybe, you yeah. know. But I knew that Dave Gilmer had done that. I didn't know about Roger Waters doing that as well. And then it's interesting here, you know, it's, this, is, this is very telling. He said, at a show at the Fillmore in San Francisco during a performance of Interstellar Overdrive, which, of course, was the, that was the real psychedelic tune of the time, wasn't it? You know, down, 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 you know, at the really? UFO club. Pink Floyd doing Interstellar Overdrive. So he was the initial driving force. Without a shadow of a doubt, Sid was the initial yeah. driving force. He said that Barrett slowly detuned his guitar. The audience seemed to enjoy it thoroughly. They enjoyed the antics, unaware that the rest of the band were in absolute consternation <laughs> of it all. You know, they were absolutely mortified that he was doing this. And it was things like that, I think. That drove him mad, you know, because he was he was uh, a loose cannon, money. Yeah. But it says it was around 19 Christmas of 1967 that guitarist Dave Gilmore, an old friend of Barrett's from Cambridge, was asked by the other members of Pink Floyd to join the band as second guitarist. So he was brought in as a, as a support for Sid. So I think initially they were trying to support him, and of course Dave was a good friend with Sid. Sid was a good friend with Roger. Again, it's the ties that bind me. And I think this yeah. is the very interesting thing about it all. What's sad, and ultimately the Pink Floyd story is a very sad story, because I think they were all such good friends, you know, initially. Yeah, well, Nick Mason is the guy that's in the middle, and he says, you know, it's really sad that these two, meaning Wars and Gilmore, these two mm. elderly gentlemen yes. cannot get over their differences. That's but pretty- as I said before, it, it's still continuing because there was a period where it was all, you know, after Live Eight and it became, you know, the feud dissipated pretty much after that. But it resurfaced again mm. uh, fairly recently because there was something that Roger wanted to get on the Pink Floyd site, you know, the Pink Floyd website, the official one. And uh, Dave won't let him put anything on there. You know, I think it might have been a re-release of Mother. Yeah. And uh, Dave says, well, you're not putting on there. Even though Dave lets his wife, Polly Samson, 
sell her shit on there. <laughs> but of course, Polly Samson, Dave, you might not know this, but she's responsible for most of the lyrics on the last Pink Floyd album. <laughs> well, I, so know. he got his wife to write him, and Roger's been very scathing about that. You know, so Dave's not going to like that. It's kind of the Australian no. nightmare situation. It's the David St. <laughs> Hubbins <laughs> scenario, isn't it? Right there. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it was just typical of the little digs they were taking at each other in the press. Gilmore revealed that he used to do a lot of Roger's bass parts on the albums when they, we recorded together, which was a bit of a secret because uh, he was apparently a better bass player than Roger. And there were some things that Roger couldn't do as good as Dave. So Dave ended up recording them. And uh, Roger used to win like best bass player of the year awards and uh, he, he would joke that oh perhaps i should give this to you dave so it was all these snarky little digs at each other mm. which kept it going i think that's it i mean you've got the sort of conceptualizer with a massive ego and i'm afraid to say roger that is the way he is you know and you've got dave who is the virtuoso musician and those two yeah. things are separate. And I think this is very interesting in music because, or any kind of creative field, but music in particular, because you have to have people to create music, to make music sound good. If you take music to its very basic form, for example, let's look at someone like Irving Berlin, okay? Irving Berlin, he wrote some of the most famous songs of all time, like White Christmas, you know, and he couldn't play a note of music. Well, no, he he didn't read a note of music and he, he, he could play piano, but it was very sort of tinky tanky twangy, you know, but he could invent, he could create, he could write songs. He had lots of ideas. The ideas flowed all the time. Yeah. And um, uh, then you get another composer, let's say like George Gershwin, who was an incredible virtuoso musician but he could write as well. He could write the music as well. But he needed his brother, Ira, to write the lyrics. The reason why I use those examples of like the, the early 20th century is because nothing's changed. You go into the 70s, you go to now, it's still the same. It's very rare that you get what you would call a real virtuoso musician who is also a creative force. I have to say that. I'm sorry about that. Great session players and great musicians. There's very few it tends to be great creative people and great musicians. Mm. And I think what's happened with Pink Floyd is that Roger is the great creative to some degree, but Dave is a great musician with some good ideas. And with great musical ideas. I mean, you know, you listen to any of the albums that Roger led, the stuff Dave lays down is incredible, I oh, he's think. He's a great you really musician. listen to it carefully. You know, I mean, comfortably normal, just as a an example, there's never been a better guitar solo, oh, I don't think, than that. It's a beautiful track, isn't it? I love that song. It's a great track. I mean, Michael Kamen's strings add loads to that. Yeah. But that guitar solo to top it off is amazing. What's great about, you know, them as a band and, you know, putting aside this kind of conflict What's remarkable about them as a band, actually, for a band that had such conflict going on, their music is beautiful. And I think mm. that's the thing that there perhaps aren't too many prog albums which you would say, God, that's beautiful. But their albums are at their peak. Their music is really beautiful and mm -hmm. melodic, melodically beautiful. 
with the twist of very thought-provoking lyrics you know yeah that's why i kind of without wanting to demean them in calling them like easy prog because it's very accessible for anybody that's why they're still mm. getting used in, it's because their music gets used in a lot of films and stuff to this day mm. you know i think comfortably mm. none was used in uh, i think in the joker or joker which was like a two billion dollar movie oh, was it? It? yeah i remember that i remember the glitter one yeah they used glitter <laughs> they used glitter and they used big Floyd. so you know that says it all doesn't it the sad thing for me is that i do believe that waters doesn't fully appreciate what dave brought to the band oh. you know and nick mason has fairly recently revealed what he thinks is the problem between them he thinks that roger doesn't respect david and david obviously feels that he's worthy of respect for what he brought to the band but it's because roger's all about creativity and he just sees dave as a guitar player he doesn't see him as as creative or an ideas man which is he's doing him a massive disservice he's not creative in the same way roger is in terms of the concept but he's he's massively creative musically oh he's massively but he's a yeah. brilliant and i can understand that how upset maybe not upset is because i think gilmore's dealt with it he's he's not bothered anymore but i can understand him feeling pissed off and angry that he's not respected by rog if that is the case i think part of the problem here is is that i think it's not that simple to be honest with you but with what has been said there i think the reality is i'm going to get my psychoanalyst head on here is that roger waters is a very smart guy and like you say creatively he's, he's amazing but he's probably slightly envious of dave gilmore's tremendous musicality Dave Gilmore is an amazing guitar player with a beautiful singing voice as well. Let's not forget that. Mm. He's got a fabulous singing voice. And he knows that the stamp of the Floyd sound resonates through Dave Gilmore. And that probably upsets him. Because have yeah, you heard, have you heard what you sing? Who would you say is the most well-known member of Pink Floyd? I mean, the fans would probably say Roger, but I think everybody else would think of Gilmore, wouldn't they? Well, so sonically, sonically, without doubt, it's Gilmore. Yeah, he's a better singer. I mean, I like Roger's singing, but Roger always sounds demented, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, Which exactly. suits the stuff he's singing. You know, especially on the final cut, he sounds deranged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's just desperate. But it's great, it works. But yeah, Dave's just got a more calming, soothing voice. But I like Dave when he sings with a bit of rasp as well, you know, yeah. when he's singing something like uh, Young Lust, you know, and uh, Not Now, John, like a rock singer. I think that's a really good point. I was going to mention this. After the breakup of the bands, Dave and Roger started solo careers, didn't they? Neither of them doing well. And Roger says it's because no one knew who the members of Pink Floyd were. So you put Roger Waters on a billboard or David Gilmore on on a poster, is that people are not going to know who these people are. Roger talks about a story where they're both playing in the same city in America on the same night, and Roger's playing to a club that holds 3,000 people, and Pink Floyd are playing up the road to 80,000 people in the stadium. 
there you go. Isn't that interesting? What the fuck? And the reality is, as I said, I was watching this uh, Dave Gilmore gig, and it was a Dave Gilmore gig. It wasn't a Pink Floyd gig. Dave Gilmore in Gdansk in Poland, right? And yeah, there must have been and Sky Arts every week. Yeah, Sky Arts. There must have been <laughs> eighty thousand people there, and he's brilliant though. Of course, but the thing is, he's a brilliant performer. He doesn't. It must be frustrating because he doesn't even to try because it, it all no. looks so easy for him. Flipping it round though, flipping that round from the ego point of view, which is deadly for everybody, but from the ego point of view, Dave probably feels upset because, you know, he is this great musician and this beautiful singer. Well, you know, in a way, really what you should be saying, just great musician, because you should look at the voice as this fantastic musical instrument if you know how to use it. Dare I say, I know a little bit how to use the voice too and it is in a way the ultimate instrument because you can you can really manipulate the voice in such a way you know what i mean and i listen to him and i go he's a singer he's a proper singer like that guy he's got a beautiful tone in yeah. his voice he knows what he's doing he can sing anything you could possibly say he he's been like roger's narrator really but he's also been that sonic narrator too because musically he's the standout member he's the standout member of pink floyd that's the difficult yeah. thing. And maybe you can see it from his point of view, too, where you think he's thinking, well, I'm a pretty good writer. I've written, I've contributed to a lot of songs that are like hugely famous. I'm this virtuoso guitarist. I'm a pretty bloody brilliant singer, too. You know, I helped to make Kate Bush a massive star as well. Yeah. You know, I've contributed elsewhere in the music business. And I'm kind of overshadowed by this guy with this enormous ego who's this kind of creative force. That is yeah. how I kind of view it, really, in a way. And I think it's a kind of slightly sad, really. I'm not feel, I'm not going to cry for them because they're both hugely successful people. But I've never really listened to, oh, I don't own any of Roger's solo albums. And uh, I have heard bits, but I can't say it's it's impressed me that much. If I'm honest, I mean, I'll probably not give it a, a chance, but I don't think they are considered great work, really. And and the same with Dave's solo albums and the later Pink Floyd albums. So so it just shows that together oh, they were God, amazing yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they both needed each other. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. if ever there was an example similar to the to the Beatles, you're looking at Pink Floyd, yeah. aren't you? Very, yeah. very similar because... They probably, without re- without realising, and they probably deny it to this day, but they probably brought the best and personally the worst out in each other. But they, musically, they brought the best out in each other, didn't they? Just like mm. Lennon and McCartney mm. did. You know, I always, I'm a big exponent of McCartney because I think he's like, I think he's like the great melody maker of the Beatles, if you like. Most of their hits are McCartney's really, but some of Lennon's stuff's amazing. Do you know what I mean? And they they probably sparked ambition in each other. They motivated each other to do good work. That's probably how it, through a bit of friendly rivalry as well. You oh, know, it's without like, doubt. Well, you've come up with that, so I'm going to come up with this. Well, it does, uh, doesn't it, Lee? I mean, you know, you and I have done that. You know, we've sort of pushed each other on with ideas and ah, you've come up with this and I've come up with that. And we've done some good stuff together, you know, as a consequence. Yeah. And that's how it all goes about. It's... Obviously, you can you can create 
uh, as a solo artist it's but it's a lonely road in some ways i think sometimes that little bit of a spark from different directions really helps but it's bad news when it goes fucking south like the, like pink floyd <laughs> people are always asking if Pink Floyd are going to get back together. And I do respect Gilmore because he says, no, Pink Floyd's done. I've finished with it. I've no interest in getting it back together. You know, and Nick Mason's happy with his huge, expensive <laughs> car collection. Well, he's just some petrol, isn't he? Isn't he? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to but be he always described him, as well as being lukewarm water, he's always described himself as the ship's cook. He's a very humble yes. guy and the one that just did as he was told, I suppose, didn't yeah, he? Without doubt, uh, he's a decent musician. He's a decent drummer, yeah. you know. Nick Mason is a decent drummer. There's absolutely yeah. no doubt about but it. I think he lost the plot a bit on the wall. There was parts he couldn't do and he needed to get a session musician in. Yeah. Well, uh, but, so I think maybe he feels he was... He's been not lucky because he deserved his place in the band. Mm. And Gilmore always says that Nick might not be the best drummer in the world, but he's the right drummer for Pink mm. Floyd. And I think that's a good way of describing it. He was an important member and he did contribute greatly to the early stuff. And I think that's what's sad, you know, when you, you think about possibly their best album, Dark Side of the Moon, which is a perfect album, like we said. Yeah. They all were contributing, you know, they were all brimming with ideas. They were all working together. There was nobody bossing the others about. And uh, it's sad that the the success of that album caused the demise or the beginning of the demise. Ten years later, Pink Floyd were no more. No, that's right. That's right. But it's it's beautiful when you listen to Dark Side of the Move to go, this is the apex of something special, you know. And it really is. It's, It's really brilliant. There's a house, there's a terraced house not far from where I live. And I've lived around here for like, what, 14 years? Yeah, yeah. And when I moved in, there was this guy. He basically turned the front of his house into the cover of Dark Side of the Moon. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a badly, very badly painted effort, I may say. (laughs) Right. And he's still got a Stop the War poster in his window from the Iraq War or the Kuwait War. Oh, good, for him. good for him. I've never seen him. I've never seen him come out of the house. But he's kept with this representation of probably his favourite album. And, you know, I think that's later. amazing. I might take a picture of it and uh, stick it up on the site. Oh, yeah, do it, do it. And, and send will. it me. Send it me. I want yeah. to see it. But, you know, I, I love it. I love the idea that he's walking around his house in his underpants listening to. <laughs> <laughs> listening to um dark side of the moon and wish you were here and uh and the wall and he's got on loop uh, <laughs> live at pompeii listening to <laughs> echoes yeah. on his radiogram i bet you know all the original vinyls yeah yeah exactly and then he, he has a little a little uh, flirt around the early sid stuff you know the early albums mm. Yeah. But they're a, they are a, a fantastic British institution and it, it you know it, we need to remember that you know they were mm. enormous. I think Dark Side of the Moon is still in the top it's in the top 5 albums of all time isn't it? It's huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it was only beat it was certainly in the 80s it was only beat by Thriller or something wasn't it? It was Well it no, was, uh, funnily enough Dave and this was something I was always 
keen to tell people is Back in Black by ACDC was number two. No, really? For a massive amount of time. Oh, wow. I think it eventually got overtaken by Darkseid and the Eagles' greatest hits. Right. Well, uh, you can't have a fucking greatest hits album. Not no, they shouldn't count, should they? They should not yeah. count. I'll just have a look now. Best selling yes. albums. I bet Shania Twain is up there as well. Oh, fucking <laughs> hell. Fuck off. Here we go. Thriller is number one, of course. Ludicrous. Uh, oh, best selling album. So, 40 million copies of more. So, you've got Michael Jackson. Oh, right. Thriller. Back in Black is, is at number two. Wow. Whitney Houston, The Bodyguard, number three. What? Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, number four. That is in the top five. Yeah. Eagles, Greatest Hits, number Fuck five. Oh, that's not. Shouldn't be allowed. No. Eagles, Hotel California, number six. Shania Twain coming over, number seven. Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, eight. And number nine, Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever. Wow. And then below that, we've got Led Zepp, Led Zeppelin four. Bad, Bat Out of Hell, Jagged Little Pill, Dirty Dancing, Celine Dion, Adele, Fuck Off, Beatles, One. That's That's the greatest hits, isn't it? And that's, then we've got that's a greatest it's Beatles yeah. one. And then we've got Metallica's Black Album. Right. I've loved tonight, Dave. I love talking about Pink Floyd with somebody that Thank knows you. as much as you. So Thank you so much. Well, you know you know more than me. Well, than you're me. as into him as I am, it seems. So uh, I am very I am enamoured with them. I, I mm. respect them and just like you, buddy, I, I kinda love them both. Yeah, I love them both. I and I agree with both of them. I agree. I think they both had points, but I think the stress and the egos stopped them being able to communicate properly. There was, uh, there was a moment in Live Aid that I thought that if Dave just genuinely hugged Roger, Roger would crumble. I really felt that. I really yeah. felt that there was because Roger was coming on like, God, oh, guys, and being the assertive Roger Waters. And Dave was the standoffish, kind of cool Dave Gilmore, which he is. That's kind of in his nature. But I kind of thought, if Dave went, come here, Rog, give us a hug. Yeah. Roger would have crumbled. And I kind of think that's what he wants. I kind of think that's part of the problem. But he's not going to ever admit that he's wrong. And I think Dave needs him to do that. He has sort of apologised, maybe not directly, but he's apologised and, and admitted that it was a bit of a nightmare at times. But he would always, he'd always ruin it by going, yeah, all right, I was, I was difficult and I was hard to get on with and I was very obstinate. But at the end of the day, I was the only one coming up with the ideas. So there, you know, and it's all my album, <laughs> you know. I wonder if they'll go to each other's funerals. Oh, Wow. That'd be, that'd be interesting. Sure they will. Yeah. Dance on each other's graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just stay behind. Wait till everyone's gone and then have a massive shit on it. Really? On that bombshell. <laughs> Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye, Goodbye listeners. And Again. keep liking us and let us know what you think. We love you. Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. We do.